0: Welcome back everybody. This is of course Chronic Failure Podcast and I am your host Brian Bostock. Today we'll be Today we'll be talking about a vision gone awry. This story is the story of how one man's vision for an idyllic, energy-efficient community started off with the greatest of intentions but ultimately culminated in disaster. Let's go ahead and get into today's episode on the Love Canal. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thank you for listening. Seven million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air. The number of weather-related disasters has increased fivefold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic waste water being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant because there are of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen soil. In 1890, William T. Love had a vision. He wanted to build a planned community in Niagara Falls, New York. We'll call this whole area the Love Canal for the purpose of this episode, and this is going to mean the canal proper and the adjacent neighborhood on the embankments. Now this community would be powered by water from the canal the canal would branch off the Niagara River and bypass the storied Niagara Falls. And we'll post an image of the canal's plans on the podcast's Instagram account. Now the idea for this canal was that it would generate power and fuel industry and homes. And so the dream began, and a giant ditch was dug. Around the same time, a few homes and streets were built, and a few heralds of industry at the time, like a steel company, expressed interest in setting up shop on the banks of the canal. Love's idea was a good idea, but as many good ideas often do, it succumbed under adverse outside factor. Two of the factors were fluctuations in the economy Around this time, there was the economic crisis of 1893 and the financial crisis of 1903, which meant that funding quickly dwindled as investors pulled out of the project. Now, the second factor is famed Nikola Tesla invented a way to cheaply distribute energy, and so the need to power the proposed community by way of the canal became moot and much more expensive than this new way to do it. By 1910, Love's dream was shattered and fell by the wayside. The community as it was imagined was never completed, and the Love Canal utopia appeared to recede into history. Later on in the 1920s, the partially dug-out Love Canal and its embankments became a municipal landfill used by the neighboring city of Niagara Falls. Now, it was a tragic outcome for the proposed utopia. In an article issued by the Environmental Protection Agency in the year following the eventual disaster, Eckhard Seebeck offers that landfills are not inherently a bad thing. And when they're properly sited, managed, and regulated, they serve a function within a community. In the case of this landfill, the property of Love Canal was purchased by Hooker Chemical Company in the 1940s. Now the purpose of this purchase was was so that Hooker Chemical could use the canal as a dump site for its chemical byproducts. Now, the process of this is called still bottoms. It is characterized as the residual waste material from the solvent recovery process. Now, this canal was estimated to be between 60 and 100 feet wide, and somewhere around 3,000 feet long, with an average depth of about 16 to 17 feet. Now, Hooker Chemical manufactured perfumes, dyes, solvents for rubber, and synthetic resin. So the company did do some things right. They had drained the canal and then lined the canal with clay, which acted as a barrier to reduce leaching of those chemicals. Now, they also purchased the land that comprised the banks of the canal on each side, which was 70 feet either way on each side. They used the canal as a dump site from 1947 to about 1952. Now this disposal process was government sanctioned. The materials disposed of were thought of as innocuous by the public. Now, thousands of drums were dropped directly into the canal or buried in its banks. And in later photographs of the site, corroding barrels would be seen jutting out from the muddy embankments. It's estimated that around 21,000 tons of chemicals were disposed of in this very fashion. And these chemicals would ultimately be buried around 20 to 25 feet in depth. In the 1950s, Love Canal was also the name given to a 15-acre neighborhood annexed from the canal. Now this hard-working middle-class community consisted of 100 homes and a school. Eventually, 900 plus families would call this area home and children were known to swim in the canal. So the children would arrive home with hard pimples all over their bodies. And in response, Hooker Chemical did not issue a public warning for fear of legal repercussions. Now, Hooker Chemical's chemists did not explain to residents the effects of the chemicals on the homes and the children's bodies. Around 1953, Hooker Chemical began the process of capping the canal. Now, the canal had been lined with clay, as I mentioned earlier, to avoid leaching of the materials into the soil below. Once Hooker Chemical finished with the site and sealed everything up, they then sold the Love Canal neighborhood to the Niagara School Board for the paltry sum of one dollar. Now, this is a lowball amount, and it is significant and it foreshadows potential issues. What ensued over the next three decades for the residents of Love Canal was a cavalcade of health problems, a depreciation of their homes, and an eventual evacuation. What was also on the docket was the creation of organized resistance and, and fruitful grassroots civic activism. Let's go ahead and hop in. The first half of the 1970s were characterized by years of consecutive heavy precipitation in the Niagara Falls region. Heavy precipitations, both in the form of snowfall and rainfall ensured that the water table rose significantly in the region. Now, this raised water table would cause significant leaching in the area. So, the chemicals that had been stored underground began percolating through the land. So, the contents of the containment area were overflowing, sopping into clay, sand, and loam. Exiting through swales and creek beds and basements and yards also began swelling with contaminated water. Also, the sewers had seen an influx of this groundwater as well. And this was due to the initial construction of those sewers having damaged the clay lining of the canal and landfill, facilitating this leaching process. Now, because Hooker Chemical had not outlined any potential danger, this fact was overlooked and, in hindsight, greatly downplayed. When the school, called the 99th Street School, was being built on the landfill site, contractors hit a drainage trench that gave off a strong chemical odor. This also ended up leading to the discovery of a waste pit nearby. Now to remediate, the school was built a mere 80 feet away. So had the public been informed of the potential dangers at play, construction efforts would have been halted and perhaps the school would have never been built, saving children From daily exposure to those chemicals. Now residents of Love Canal began complaining of acrid smells in their basements and one woman, Aileen Voorhees, had been curtailing a black sludge from seeping through her basement cement walls since 1959. Now her daughter, Karen Schroeder, had her in-ground swimming pool swell up from the rising water table as well. This particular pool ended up being removed with the intent to recase a new pool in cement. Unfortunately, the hole from the previous pool quickly filled up with what she called chemical water. In a 1979 issue of The Atlantic, Journalist Michael H. Brown details the scene as such. Rancid liquids of yellow and orchid blue, these same chemicals had mixed with the groundwater and flooded the entire yard, attacking the redwood posts with such a caustic bite that one day the fence simply collapsed. When the chemicals receded in the dry weather, they left the gardens and shrubs withered and scorched as if by a brush fire. Now these descriptions would be rehashed in other testimonials. Trees in the Love Canal neighborhood becoming black and dying were frequently noted. Puddles of noxious substances were noted, children with chemical burns on their hands and faces, and other notable trends Was that the marked presence of birth defects and miscarriages reported by residents had started to increase drastically unfortunately for the locals the worst was yet to come as residents of the love canal would all begin feeling the compounded effect of living over a ticking environmental time bomb One 1979 epidemiological study documented in the New York Times stated that the rate of miscarriage in the Love Canal area was 29.4%. Now, 33% of residents showcased chromosomal damage as well, and this played into this miscarriage. And four in 24 children Also had demonstrable birth defects. The study also showed that there was a high prevalence of rectal, breast, and blood cancers and dogs were reported as having cases of distemper and tumors and would reportedly scarcely survive past the age of three. Other noted adverse health effects were high white blood cell counts, which are precursors to leukemia, as well as chemical burns on children and dogs and low birth weights. Now Karen Schroeder, who I mentioned previously, gave birth to her third child, a daughter, in 1968. Her daughter, named Sherry, was born with severe physical disabilities. These disabilities were an irregular heartbeat and a hole in the heart. She was partially deaf. Her ears were deformed on the outside. And she had bone blockages in her nose. And she also had a cleft palate. Now later on it would come to light that Sherry also had some intellectual disabilities. She had two rows of teeth. And an enlarged liver. Unfortunately, Karen's daughter was ill, and she wasn't the only one. The journalist Michael C. Brown, who covered the Love Canal disaster for The Atlantic in 1979, was one of the first journalists to begin covering the story locally. In 1977, while working for the Niagara Gazette, he began to inquire and document strange occurrences like the ones lived by the Schroeder family. Most of these occurrences were chalked up to be nuisances by the Niagara County Health Department as well as the city. Now, these claims were most likely bolstered by the fact that Hooker Chemical had been greatly misleading when the property transfer had occurred. In Brown's piece for The Atlantic, which I alluded to earlier, he states that, quote, Though Hooker was undoubtedly relieved to rid itself of the contaminated land, the company was so vague about the hazards involved that one might have thought, The wastes could cause harm only if touched, because they irritated the skin. Otherwise, they were not of great concern. In reality, as the company must have known, the dangers of these waters far exceeded those of acids or alkalines or inert salts. We now know that the drums Hooker had dumped in the canal contained a veritable witch's brew of compounds of truly remarkable toxicity. There were solvents that attacked the heart and liver, and residues from pesticides so dangerous that their commercial sale was shortly thereafter restricted outright by the government. Some of them were already suspected of causing cancer. Now it seems here it was pretty obvious that in a veiled attempt to dissociate itself with the poisoned land, Hooker donated this land to the school board for that one dollar, which put many lives at risk. In September of 1976, the New York Department of Environmental Conservation had been made aware of the potential presence of dangerous compounds found in the sump pumps of several houses in the Love Canal neighborhood. The DEC at the time was sniffing around as they were suspicious that Hooker Chemical had dumped a pesticide known as Mirex in the dump site through a bit of testing they ended up finding traces of chlorinated hydrocarbons known as PCBs now these chemicals would go on to be banned by the US in 1979 due to the fact that they harm humans health and the environment they also found hexachloral cyclopentadine known as c56 used in the manufacturing process of pesticides now these are acutely toxic to humans following short-term inhalation in the following months the niagara gazette reported that toxic chemicals spewing from the local landfill were causing harm to humans animals and plant life and two reporters from the niagara gazette also independently tested sump pumps of those homes in November of 1976. Now, they found 15 organic chemicals and three types of hydrochlorinated carbons. Two years later, in 1978, the Environmental Protection Agency took over this issue. This testing round was urged by a local congressman, John LaFolk. The EPA would end up testing to see if the chemicals originally found in the sump pumps had vaporized. The results of the EPA tests showed that there was benzene, known for causing cancer in humans, in a notable quantity in fact, and this was in the household air. So we have talked about benzene a little bit in previous episodes. Benzene exposure causes headaches, fatigue, loss of weight, dizziness, pallor, nosebleeds, and damage to bone marrow. Unfortunately, County health officials at the time ultimately ignored the EPA's recommendations when finding benzene. They stated that it was the EPA's mandate to always err on the side of caution. And in a statement that would prove to not age well at all, they furthered that the benzene was no more dangerous than smoking a couple cigarettes a day. One of the most glaring issues of the Love Canal disaster is how no one wanted to first acknowledge a problem at all, and second kickstart remediation once the problems were found. Initially, the city manager of Niagara Falls relegated the Love Canal issue as a simple issue of aesthetics. And this fact was also supported by the county health examiner. So going back to Hooker Chemical, for its part, they had glossed over the problem in the first place. They were certainly not going to partake in any of the remediation efforts. Furthermore, it appeared that the city was holding off on compensating the 100 plus families that lived directly alongside the landfill. Compensation would mean acknowledgement, and acknowledgement would mean casting Hooker Chemical in a bad light. Now, Hooker Chemical at the time employed more than 3,000 people in that same area, and the company was teasing the fact that it was considering opening a headquarters office in downtown Niagara Falls. It appears that officials were held in sort of a chokehold and blinded by the prospect of an economic boom. It's rather unfortunate that the people who suffered the most were the working class families that dotted the landscape of the Love Canal. However, a shift was set to happen. The Love Canal disaster is actually very important, more than just a topic here for chronic failure, because it is a story that illustrates how folks were beginning to collectively grapple with the reality that the Love Canal was only one of the many sites across the United States where chemicals had been irresponsibly stored. Back to Michael C. Brown, our Niagara Falls Gazette reporter, he had been hitting the streets in 1977 and early 1978, collecting information from residents and publishing hundreds of articles about the chemical spills. He would go on to urge residents to organize, and one of these organizers would end up being that Karen Schroeder, who we talked about earlier. Now this brings us to the positive spin on the Love Canal disaster. The legacy of activism born out of the Love Canal is rather unusual. In the press, receiving national attention were homemakers, and these were mothers with their babies still in strollers. The accepted leader of this group of activists was Lois Gibbs, the president of the Love Canal Homeowners Association. When Lois read an article in the Niagara Falls Gazette about dump sites cluttering the region, there was a mention of Love Canal. Now, this article detailed how the school and adjacent playground had been built on top of a landfill that was sold to the school board for $1. Of course, Lois was mortified. Both of her children, Michael and Melissa, had been born with many ailments ranging from immune to blood disorder. And they frequented the school and playground. Lois would go on to recall in a piece for the Center for Public Integrity by Ronnie Green, a conversation that she had shortly after, one which would spur her into a lifetime of activism. When pressed to move her son to another school, Lois secured a meeting with the school superintendent. Now, in this meeting, she presented him with two doctor's notes and suggested a link between his illnesses and the fact that the school was built on a toxic dump site. According to her, he replied, We're not going to do that because of one hysterical housewife with a sick kid. If your kid is so sick, why don't you go home and take care of him? Why are you running around to City Hall and the school board? Lois's experience is a micro version of a macro problem, one that peppers this story, the lack of accountability from officials, and the average person paying the price financially, psychologically, and Physically. Instead of turning her around, this conversation spurred Lois forward. She began knocking on doors collecting testimonials. Fortunately for her, she was relatable. She was a resident of Love Canal and her children had been directly affected by the buried chemicals. And because of this, other residents began opening themselves up to her. And so this mobilization in Love Canal was beginning to take place. In August of 1978, the New York State Department of Health declared the site a health emergency. The recommendations put out by them included closing the 99th Street School, evacuating all pregnant women, evacuating all children under the age of two, suggesting that people not eat produce from their gardens, and suggesting that people not hang out in their basement. The first batch of families, which consisted of about 236 families, closest to the site were then evacuated, and it was announced by Governor Hugh Carey that those homes would be purchased by the government. And this was the beginning of the actual dismantling of the community. On August 7th, 1978, then-President Jimmy Carter declared a federal state of emergency. Now, he would in turn allocate federal funds to help Niagara Falls deal with this unfolding situation in Love Canal. Now, the goal here was to start a cleanup process overlooked by the EPA, and relocate the initial batch of families in the hazard zone. And this hazard zone was the closest zone to the canal. Now it was at this point that the public funds were being used for something other than a natural disaster. At the time that all of this was going on, the EPA was only about eight years old and was mostly a federal department, but now the EPA was getting its hands into the environmental matters of individual states. It was just getting its footing at the time when our study unfolded, and they were ultimately tasked with dealing with this contaminated area. So, a plan was put into place. The plan included building a trench system to drain the chemicals from the canal into sewers. The next step would be installing polyethylene containment around the bed of the canal to prevent further seepage. And then a more solid layer of clay would end up being capped over the area again. This new plan proposed by the EPA was met with resistance as locals were pushing for a wider evacuation. More specifically, they wanted to be paid to leave and be able to relocate effectively. Ultimately, tensions escalated when various scientific reports reported that residents of Love Canal would endure widespread health concerns due to their prolonged exposure to the chemicals at the dump site. And activists like Lois Gibbs were arrested during this crescendo, but ultimately all the activists would be released. Now at the height of this movement, in 1980, two EPA workers were even kidnapped. They were sequestered in a house during an HOA meeting, but they would also be ultimately released after about six hours. Now, the goal of this kidnapping was to get attention from then-President Jimmy Carter, who was knee-deep in a re-election campaign against Ronald Reagan. Now, it may not have been the right thing to do, but this ruse would ultimately work, and in the end, Jimmy Carter agreed to pay for the relocation of the remaining 700-ish families in Love Canal. Now this delineation of evacuated families was extended to a 50 square block area and some of these families were either bought out and others were offered low interest loans to buy new homes elsewhere. Now interestingly enough the low interest loan is actually a legacy of Lois Gibbs directly pressuring Jimmy Carter. The legacy of activism in Love Canal is very significant. It's a reminder that although select few may be at the helm of destruction for profit, there is merit in solidarity. At the forefront of the movement were women labeled as homemakers, and these were pregnant women, women pushing strollers, and children. And they would all picket in march for the cause. Now the tactics used by the activists were the direct action variety, which were these protests, rallies, and the tactics used by the activists were meant to glean media attention. Their goal was, in fact, very clear. They wanted to be compensated for their relocation. Ultimately, this form of organized activism spearheaded the creation of the Superfund Act. The events at Love Canal were the locus for Superfund, a program that tackles environmental disasters in the United States to this day. Now this is a beneficial legacy of the disaster. It awakened the public consciousness and got the ball rolling for a legislative body to be put into place to tackle these sorts of issues. Now Superfund is a United States federal environmental remediation program established by the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation, and Liability Act of 1980. This program is administered by the Environmental Protection Agency, and it is designed to investigate and clean up sites contaminated with hazardous substances. Now, any of the sites that have been tackled by this program are referred to as Superfund sites. Now we do have more Superfund sites that we will talk about in future episodes, so keep an eye out for those. The question of liability hovers at the center of this Love Canal story, and unfortunately this theme is all too common in most of our topics. In 1968, Hooker Chemical became a subsidiary of Occidental Petroleum Company. Now, the company would only be held accountable for the disaster at Love Canal in 1994, which is over 20 years after the first murmurs of contamination began taking center stage. The company would be ordered to fork over $98 million in civil cases, and an additional $25 million was also ordered to be paid up to cover cleanup costs. Jumping back a little bit, in 1979, an article in the EPA Journal, Eckhart C. Beck hauntingly asserts, quote, Although we are taking these aggressive strides to make sure that hazardous waste is safely managed, there remains the question of liability regarding accidents occurring from waste disposed of previously. This is a missing link, but no doubt this question will be addressed effectively in the future. Now, this is a melancholy note, as even in current cases, we struggle to confidently ascertain blame, and private entities are quick to weasel their way out of taking accountability. Now, luckily, Beck's critique was on point, and there was a cognizant lack of accountability. The fact that corporate entities were often being sold or auctioning off properties was not lost on the EPA, and presumably other officials. The Superfund Act includes a retroactive liability clause, which is fantastic. It is this clause that ultimately found Occidental liable for the disaster, even if it was adhering to government-sanctioned methods of disposal at the time of disposal. In 1984, the EPA found that the canal contained dioxin to the tune of 100,000 times the toxic level threshold for lab animals, And I'm sure you can recall that dioxin is a persistent organic polluter and known carcinogen associated with the likes of Agent Orange and other topics we've covered. Now, bolstering this finding, Occidental began shelling out money to settle a slew of civil suits, personal injury claims and insurance claims, a little bit that we just previously touched on. Now through the 80s, the Love Canal area was reportedly monitored by Occidental with various cleanup operations in effect, which were draining sewers and regularly testing the air and soil. The Love Canal Area Revitalization Agency, founded in 1980, was mandated to restore the area. This new space is actually now called Black Creek Village, and it is north of the original site of Love Canal. Now, this area was deemed safe in 1998 following extensive testing, and there are still 38 wells that are continually monitoring the nearby areas. In 2004, the Love Canal was removed from the Superfund list, taking 30 years for cleanup efforts to pay off. And these cleanup efforts had cost the government $400 million. That's money from the taxpayers and not the company who was at fault. Today, Love Canal is a bare 70-acre swath of empty land, corralled by a chain-link fence. Now, it's monitored by Glen Springs, a subsidiary of Occidental Petroleum, as per government mandate. Residents of Black Creek Village not far away have reported several strange things such as smelling strange chemical odors having noted some health concerns like fibrosis and there have been litigation efforts against the city of niagara in an effort to once again direct attention towards the dump site now this is because the waste is still there although it has been capped and sealed It still sits below the surface, and many fear it's simply bidding its time before these same issues arise. At the end of the day, Love Canal was a symbol for toxic waste management. Many such sites still exist across the United States at the time of this episode. Fortunately, aside from the Superfund program, other good things came out of this issue such as the activism movement. The activism movement attached to this issue was spurred by the revelation that Love Canal was a ticking time bomb. This disaster also generated a momentum that was harnessed by activists to spearhead other cleanup efforts as well as further government regulation in the environment. In a 2019 interview, Lois Gibbs mused on the reason why the grassroots environmentalism in Love Canal was triumphant. She said, quote, We were a small, blue-collar community, And you know we weren't scientists yet we were able to do it because we stuck together. Now it will be interesting to see what the future holds for this site considering those contaminants are still underground. We may find it being put back on the Superfund site if that clay layer is ever penetrated again I hope you enjoyed today's episode initial research was done by Chloe Kibby I want to remind you that we do have an Instagram page we post photos and descriptions related to each topic over there that is at the Chronic Failure Podcast, and I would greatly appreciate if you would give us a like and follow on whatever listening platform you use. This is going to help get the word out about what we're doing over here and allow us to grow and maybe even increase the scope of topics that we discuss. Of course, we do have an email address. If you have topic ideas, if you have questions, if you just want to chat, that all sounds great. You can send us an email at info at com. Next week's episode will be a current events episode for the month of April. So we've got a few good stories that we're going to share with you. The first one is the Goldman Environmental Prize went to an indigenous woman. The forever chemicals found in biodegradable takeout packaging there's an update on that, and a proposed EU CO2 border tax. And the last topic we will cover is a recent study on the toxicity of drugs released in to waterways. It should be a pretty good episode with sort of a vast array of topics included within it, So I'm hoping to have you join in again next week and hear about those topics. Now that is all I have for today. So until next week, have a good one.